6: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. And a lot of people have been asking me, hey, do you guys have swag? And we do. We've got T-shirts. We've got blankets. uh, We've got mugs and all kinds of other things. Go to ouramericanstories.com and uh, check it out and uh, help us out. We love hearing stories from Mississippi natives. We broadcast from northern Mississippi, the small bucolic town, a beautiful college town called Oxford. We're about an hour south of Memphis. Randall Haley is from the Mississippi Delta, but came to Oxford for school and for work. Like most people that move away from home, she at times got a little homesick. Here is Randall with her story.
7: There were three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah. We're going to make it happen." Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman It's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta But there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life, even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word. I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop, and the university of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, found a piece of that culture I love, a true Delta Aura, at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi, sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. The crowd couldn't get enough of her so-delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton row, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila! People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama, were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenburgen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenburgen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland.'" And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff. That one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be. Puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So dealt.
6: And so Delta, indeed, and if you've never been to northern Mississippi or to the Delta, or to the general Memphis region, take a visit and you'll see a lot of American history and a lot of, well, a lot of bad things, too, or some bad things. You'll see the Martin Luther King Civil Rights Museum. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. But also the rich culture, the heritage, and my goodness, the magnificence of the never-ending horizons of the Delta itself, And the sights, sounds, and smells. You were listening to Randall Haley, her story of being homesick and yet loving where she lives too. And that's so many of us who move away and never really come back, but also never really leave. And to anyone who has stories like this, again, send them to ouramericanstories.com. And particularly stories of your hometown. Randall Haley's story here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, a true story of David Klein, an eccentric candy inventor from LA, who's the creator and founder of Jelly Belly Jelly Beans, my personal favorite candy. Here's David Klein to share the story of how he lost his beans, but kept his soul.
4: I was born in Syracuse, New York. Uh, We left there when I was three and a half. And I remember nothing about it. We came to California. My dad uh, was the best furniture salesman in the world. And he knew more about furniture than anybody alive. And when I was growing up, I worked in a liquor store that my aunt and grandmother owned. It was in van nuys right next to a union 76 station that was owned by joe punicello annette punicello's father and in those days if your family owned the liquor store you could work in there and from the age of about seven to 13 uh, i worked in the liquor store all during the summer and after school and I got quite an experience dealing with the public. I learned how to count money at the age of seven, make change and all the things that I learned there. I wanted to put into a book one day and the title of the book would be everything I knew in life I learned working in a liquor store. And what happened was we had a candy section there, and I would go with my aunt once a week to Smart and Final, which was one of the wholesale candy places. Uh, most of the candy bars back in that those days, uh, that, let's see, it was 1946 plus seven. 46 plus for seven, for eight for nine, 51, two, 1953. 7, 8, 9, 50, 1, 2, yeah, 1953. Uh, Smart and Final would display the bars, the candy bars, 24 in a box. And if there was no shrink, shrunk, shrink wrap on any of the boxes, if you wanted to taste one of the bars to see if you liked it, you would put a nickel right in the box and then take a bar out. And that way, whoever bought that box would already have a sale. And it was I made a study of candy. At the, starting at the age of seven, I would study every bar, see where it was made, see the company who made it, and then go to the library. I did a study on uh, Standard & Poor's Guide in the financial reference section. And I would look to see, for example, uh, Baby Ruth, Butterfinger, those were made in those those days by the uh, Curtis Candy Company. Uh, And then I followed the company when it was acquired by Standard Brands. And then when it was acquired by Nabisco, and through all of the, I would learn the history of every candy bar. Uh, When I was in school and the teacher had to leave the room for a few minutes, she would ask me, or she or he would ask me, to come up in the front and talk about candy. And kids would yell out names of candy bars, and I would tell them the history behind that particular bar. I went to Van Nuys High in Van Nuys, California, Uh, I graduated Van Nuys High with honors and went to UCLA, graduated uh, with a degree in economics, which is a fantastic major. While I was at UCLA, I used to sell popcorn. I was in the popcorn business with my uncle where I would go after school. I had already taken the back seat out of my car. I loaded the car with bags of popped popcorn And I was selling those primarily to liquor stores uh, because you can go into a liquor store till actually two in the morning in in California. You cannot sell liquor legally after two in the morning. So I would usually have my route till about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, Would go in all kinds of areas that I really should not have been in at night. Uh, But I I was and nothing ever happened to me And then I would go home and I'd get up at six seven o'clock in the morning and go to UCLA Uh, after school, I would go pop the popcorn uh, in that water and I really learned about the food business uh, by doing that Uh, You in order to learn a business. It's I mean it's nice to to read about it, but unless you really get in there and get your hands uh, dirty, you really need to experience the business. Here's what happened in law school. I always knew that I would never want to be an attorney. I went there because my parents wanted me to, and I also went there so that I would have a legal background if if we ever had any legal problems. I graduated in the top of my class. Uh, When it came to take the bar, uh, the bar was in two parts. Uh, The first part was in the morning, and then the second part, it was a true and false test on uh, legal responsibility and I never went back for the second part. I went to get a haircut instead. I knew that if I had passed the bar, which I'm sure I would have, I would have become an attorney. And uh, it wasn't for me. It, It wasn't what I personally wanted to do in my life. And it was almost as if I knew I would be in the candy business someday. It was almost like it was there was nothing else for me to do i would be in the candy business and there was something about candy i like the idea that you could always come up with a new idea new creation and when i was in the wholesale candy and nut business one day i came up with the idea of creating a gourmet jelly bean While i was watching television at eight fifteen. happy days oh, what that? happy days was on the air when i was talking to a buddy on the phone we were talking about new businesses because i always love to talk love to talk about new businesses and i said i think i'm going to open up a candy store and only sell jelly beans nothing else And he said, jelly beans? I said, yes, jelly beans. No jawbreakers, no gumballs, just jelly beans. And I knew that if that's what I concentrated on, they would have to be special jelly beans. And that's when the idea started. I had $800 to my name. No credit cards back then. The only credit card that was available was Diners Club. The year was 1976.
6: And you've been listening to David Klein tell the story of Jelly Belly and what a story it is. His father, as he said, was the best furniture salesman in the world. He learned so much about life, simply working the register and working in essence at the local family liquor store. Where we would buy supplies, buy products and services and goods. We I mean, learned how to run a business or be a part of a business run by a family. When we come back, we're going to find out what happens next as one man pursues his dream. David Klein's story, The Story of Jelly Belly, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with David Klein's story, and he is the founder and inventor of Jelly Belly. And when we last left off, he had $800 to his name, and he set out to create the world's first gourmet jelly bean. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here's David Klein.
4: I approached the company that was in Oakland, California. Their name was Herman Golitz. G-O-E-L-I-T-Z and I asked them if they would be my contract manufacturer. And I told them what the idea was and they said, sure, let's give it a shot. And in the beginning we had a very hard time selling the product. Uh, Most of the beans back in those days our competition Uh, They were selling for about 49, 59 cents a pound. And that's exactly what I was paying my contract manufacturer, 59 a pound. But that's what every other bean was retailing for. I realized that in order to get the product off the ground, I would have to get some publicity for it. So. One day, I called up the Associated Press, talked to a young man by the name of Steve Fox. He was in charge of the business section. Associated Press was huge back in those days. And I realized that they could make or break the product. I could have started with a local newspaper, but I figured I'd start at the top. I didn't have enough money to rent a store so i called on one of my wholesale customers who i sold uh, walnuts to and almonds that they put in their ice cream they had an ice cream factory at 1824 west maine in alhambra and i said to them you have your medals from the county fair over in the corner Uh, I would like to have that space this is my new product it's gonna be called Jelly Bellies and I would like to put a little stand in there which I will pay for so he said okay how much rent do you want to pay and I said I can't really pay any rent cuz I I just don't have the funds and I said how about if I pay you a dollar for every pound that is sold, one dollar, the first dollar goes to you. He said, well, how much are they gonna sell for? I said, two dollars a pound. I said, I will split, whatever comes in, you get the first dollar. And he said, it sounds good. So, I put the stand in there. I had a, um, the daughter of one of the men that owned the ice cream parlor. Uh, was a, a an exceptionally good graphic artist and she called me up and said she needed a project for her art center school she was at the College of Art and Design and she would like to use Jelly Belly as her term paper and I left it up to her she was the one that picked out the colors And she did the Jelly Belly logo that is still in use today. A young lad came in one day on a bicycle. And he said, I would like to try one of your strawberry jelly beans. So I had a little spoon there. I spooned out one. And I said, here, what do you think of it? And he said, that doesn't taste like strawberry. I said, okay. What does it taste like? He said that tastes like cotton candy. And as soon as he left, I had one of the sign makers there make me a sign that said cotton candy. And from then on in, there was no strawberry flavor. It was cotton candy. And I never got a chance to thank that young lad. He's out there somewhere. The first order of jelly beans that I got in, there were eight flavors. Root beer was one of them. I always loved root beer. Uh, The soda, I loved root beer and I love cream soda. So we had a vanilla one and instead of calling it vanilla i named it cream soda i always like to have creative names to all of the the flavors instead of calling one chocolate it was chocolate pudding Uh, so i tried to create as many uh, names that were different just to distinguish them from other products so when i told them what i wanted I said i want to make a miniature jelly bean i didn't want the big ones like they used to see in easter baskets and i told them that the beans have to be flavored on the inside as well as on the outside shell that way i could do double flavors i could do like chocolate banana and do the outside chocolate and the inside banana Uh, I told them I wanted a watermelon bean and I wanted it green on the outside and red on the inside. Prior to Jelly Bellies, every jelly bean that you used to see used to be white on the inside because they made only one center. And then they put the flavor into the shell, if they put any flavor at all. Most jelly beans tasted the same except for the black one the licorice one and so i was really the first one to come up with the idea of flavoring the outside as well as the inside and that's how jelly belly got its start and most days we took in about 20 dollars. that was the average day uh, until the article came out in the associated press and then i started getting calls from department stores such as marshall fields in chicago they said we want to buy your beans i said we're here in california how did you hear about them well it was just in the chicago tribune it was also in the detroit free press it was in the new york times it was in the la times the article broke on the, on the wire, and it went everywhere. And the product really started to take off. Uh, it took off to the point where uh, sales were just incredible. Uh, my contract manufacturer actually could not keep up with the orders. Uh, when I initially had talked to them, I asked them, I said, this is gonna be big, guys. I said, are you going to be able to keep up with the, all the orders? And they said yes. And I did not realize that they were a primarily a small candy corn manufacturer in Oakland uh, with about 10 employees. And somehow or another in my mind, I always picture them as a larger company. The biggest mistake I ever made was not flying up there in the beginning to see what, what their factory looked like because if I had seen it, I would have known that they never would have been able to keep up with production.
6: And you're listening to David Klein tell the story of Jelly Belly, and he's an innovator. There's no other jelly bean I'll eat but Jelly Belly, and I don't care how much more expensive they are, and I know a lot of you listening feel the same way about your beloved beans. When we come back, more of the story of Jelly Belly here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of Jelly Belly and its founder, David Klein. And when we last left off, thanks to Klein's round-the-clock promotion, Jelly Belly sales skyrocketed. But his contract manufacturer in Oakland couldn't keep up with the orders. Klein told us, quote, the biggest mistake I ever made was not flying up there in the beginning to see what their factory looked like, because if I'd seen it, I would have known that they would have never been able to keep up with production. Here's Klein with the final installment of his story.
4: And then O.J. Simpson was on the cover of People Magazine, the issue that I was in. And when my contract manufacturer saw the picture, I had on bathing shorts and nothing else. He turned to his sales manager and said that I had blown the whole Golden Goose because nobody would buy a product from somebody that would pose half naked in a magazine and so at that point in time he instructed his sales manager they also made candy corn and it was made on the same equipment as the jelly beans He instructed him, without telling me, to sign as many contracts as he could to be selling candy corn at 29 cents a pound, just to keep the factory open. And I was was never told that. So here I am trying to promote an item that I'm wondering why there's no production on. And what it did, it created a void in the marketplace that other manufacturers were just happy to fill. One day, I got a call from the owner of my contract manufacturing company. And he said, we're coming to town. And I said, okay, great. I'll pick you up at the airport. What airport are you flying into? And he said, it's not going to be one of those kind of meetings. And I said, well, what kind of meeting is it? He said, we're coming to buy your trademark and we're not gonna leave until we do. As soon as I signed the contract where we were turning the name over to them, we were driving on Rosemead Boulevard to the bank to get the contract notarized. And while on the way there, I was sitting in the back seat, Herm, my contract manufacturer, was in the front seat. And he turned around and I said, Herm, I have one question for you. If we were not on our way to the bank to have this contract notarized, what would you have done? And he said, do you really want to know? I said, yeah, tell me. What would you have done? He said, we would have flown back to Oakland, and on Monday morning, we would have shut off production to you on Jelly Bellies. We would have cut you off completely. You would not not have any more product. We know you would have sued us, but by the time it got to court, you would have been broke. Those were his exact words. I can remember them today like they were yesterday. We would have cut you off. Uh, In fact, they told me, as we were going to get it notarized, they had another name already picked out that he had on the other side of his lap, on a piece of paper on his lap. He said, you want to see the name that we would have called it? And I said, sure. And he showed it to me. I don't remember what that name was but anyway they took over ownership of the name Uh, they paid us 17 cents a pound for the first hundred and twenty thousand pounds per month royalty uh, maximum once the product reached that level uh, there was no royalty at all so we only got paid on the first 120,000 pounds at 17 cents a pound, which came to $20,000 per month. I split that with my partner, and then Uncle Sam obviously got his share of it. And right from the beginning when I sold, it was almost like selling a a member of your family, a child, uh, a Jelly Belly. I spent four years of my life, going around the country, promoting the product, being on radio shows, on talk shows, on television shows, uh, at least once uh, a week. And giving interviews in magazines and all kinds of uh, media. And uh, losing the ownership of it was heartbreaking for me. The minute they took over, they started packaging the product and the prior packaging had my signature on there. uh, Mr. Jelly Belly, Uh, about two months later, I went into a supermarket and I looked at the package uh, and there was a computer generated Mr. Jelly Belly instead of uh, my Mr. Jelly Belly signature. Uh, When they came out with a book called The 30-Year History of Jelly Bellies. I was not even mentioned in in that at all. So they pretended that I never existed. As soon as Colonel Sanders sold out, he was still Colonel Sanders. As soon as I sold out, I was nobody. So they, they basically did what they could to destroy any knowledge of me Having anything to do with the product but for many many years I I just did not have a good feeling about creating the product but I've come to terms with the fact that so many people were employed by the company all I can tell you is it was an experience uh, creating a world a product that's got about 98 percent Name recognition. But uh, you have to recreate yourself. Uh, recently, we got involved in the CBD jelly bean business. We are making jelly beans with CBD in them, 10 milligrams per bean. So, right now, back into the jelly bean business after all these years. Uh, Last year, around September, we started a new venture. Uh, it's called the Goldticket.com. It's a, a nationwide treasure hunt. We hide a gold necklace in 50 states, different areas, obviously. And we give clues, riddles. We give a riddle so that they know where it is. The winner for each of the 50 contests received $5,000. All states were claimed Uh, and we received so much positive feedback on that because while COVID was going on, people didn't have too many activities that they could go to. This, they could pile everybody into a car and travel all together. And it was extremely successful. So it was so successful that we're doing another round of that same activity. So we're very happy doing that. And we feel like we're doing something really good for the world. And the one documentary that's out there now, it's shown on Amazon. And uh, you can watch it if you're an Amazon member for free and it's been seen all over the world it's called Candyman, the david klein story my son and his wife and costa botez collaborated on it they made it into a very good very great documentary in my opinion that will stand the test of times so that brings us up to date and uh i I I love being in a business where you feel that you can help people. This is America. If you come up with a good idea, you can run with that idea. Make them happy. That's the whole idea behind it.
6: And a great job on that piece by Greg. And a special thanks to David Klein for telling his story. David Klein's story, the story of Jelly Belly, here on Our American Stories.
4: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25
2: years,
1: I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug
4: cartels in Mexico,
6: Com. That's better. H E L P. dot com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then
3: Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
4: It's my little escape.
3: Now Judy's the life of the party.
4: Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
3: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>